You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, welcome to another episode of Luke's English Podcast. In the last one, you heard me talking to Lindsay and Gabby from the All Ears English Podcast. We were talking about our culture shock experiences as a general sort of look at what culture shock is and how we can understand it. You heard me in that episode say that I would go into a little bit more detail regarding the different stages or phases of culture shock. Um, So that's what I'd like to do in this episode. First of all, um, why am I talking about culture shock so much? In fact, I've got lots and lots of things to say on this subject. It's something that comes up on Luke's English podcast sometimes. I did an episode called Sick in Japan, where I described a story about how I Um, got sick while living in Japan but that kind of included lots of culture shock experiences. I did another episode called First Impressions of Life in Paris which is all about well clearly my first impressions of living in Paris and now I'm revisiting the subject in a bit more depth in order to um, really kind of clarify lots of the different issues that relate to this. I think it's a really good subject to deal with on the podcast because of course I have people listening to this from all around the world. In fact if I have a look now at the statistics on my website. Um, Let me just have a little look here um, and we can see um, who's listening or who's at least visiting uh, the web page. If I have a look at the statistics for yesterday, I'll be able to see who, uh, which which are the top countries. Um, Okay, so yesterday the top country was uh, Russia, the Russian Federation, after that Poland, then Spain, then Italy, then the United Kingdom, then Japan, then Ukraine, United States, Republic of Korea, I think that's South Korea, I don't have the full name there, it's basically South Korea, Brazil, Czech Republic, Belarus, uh, Mexico, those are the top countries. countries by visits to my website. So obviously Luke's English podcast is a massive, massive, oh yes, it's a big international community, okay? And so I expect that you, the people listening to this, will have some kind of culture shock experience in your life. Either you are um, living in a foreign country, you might be living in the UK, for example, um, and you're experiencing some level of culture shock on a daily basis, just trying to get used to life in Britain and the weather and the food and understanding the weird ways in which we do things. Um, so either you're living in, in an English-speaking country like perhaps England the, in the UK, um, or you are someone who has spent time living abroad um, you uh, you might have travelled abroad to work and lived for you know a fairly long period of time. You may have lived in the UK and now you're back in your own country, just trying to keep your English fresh. Um, or maybe you're someone who's never been anywhere. You've only ever stayed in your country. You've never had the opportunity to go abroad, but you'd love to. And one day you plan to do it. Or maybe you've actually got specific plans to go and stay somewhere. You could be, for example, planning a trip to London where you're going to stay for a few months and learn English. Lots of possibilities. But I imagine that almost all of you will or will have had um, all kinds of different uh, cross-cultural experiences. This is the community of Luke's English Podcast. That's why I think it's really important to cover this subject. Because culture shock is something that everyone experiences. It's not 
not necessarily something that everyone is ready to experience or or something that we're all prepared for i think the name culture shock the word is a little bit misleading because culture shock that it, that suggests that what will happen is you'll step off the airplane or step out of the train station into this new country that you're visiting and you expect to have a kind of slap in the face it's not normally like that unless you go to somewhere really different i mean i've been to india a couple of times and i did find it to be a little bit of a shock when i arrived obviously it's a beautiful fantastic country but it's really quite different to life in in England. Um, for example, you get out of the um, airport and immediately you're confronted with a, a much more chaotic environment than I'm used to in England. So that was quite a shock because it's like, wow, um, lots of people are trying to talk to me. Everyone's trying to get my attention because they want me to use their taxi. I don't know who to trust. Are these people real taxi drivers or are they going to try and take me somewhere where I don't want to go? It's really confusing and chaotic. So that's quite a shocking scenario at the beginning. But I think most of the time when you go somewhere, it's not really a shock. And culture shock doesn't, you don't experience culture shock in the way that you might expect. In fact, the um, symptoms of culture shock may be um, hard even to identify. Sometimes it happens without you even realising it. Um, and I'll be going into that in a bit more detail. So um, culture shock is real. It's definitely something that happens. It just might not happen in the way that you expect it to. Um, first of all, uh, before I start talking about the four phases of culture shock, let's just make sure we know what it is. Of course, it's the disorientation that a person might feel when they go to a different culture. It could be going to another country, but it could just be when they experience a change in culture um, in another context. For example, it could be when you go and work in a different company, uh, a company that has a different you know, company culture. It could also be when you go to another part of your country uh, where they do things a little bit differently. You can experience culture shock in that situation too. So it's not just an international thing. It's, um, it, could be, it can be a local thing. It can be kind of quite a small thing, uh, like going to a new company. There's lots of ways that you can experience it. Um, so it's ultimately, it's, it's a question of change management or the way in, you, in, the way in which you respond or react to uh, living in a, a, a different environment, okay? Uh, how you cope with uh, a change of environment and an unfamiliar lifestyle. Um, culture shock can manifest itself in terms of behavior, like just the general way in which people behave in this new place. It could be the values held by the people in this new place. The fact that they, as a, gen as a general rule in that culture, think that certain aspects of life are more important than others and that sort of comes through in various ways um, and you start to realize wow these people think this is very important like for example in France one of the values that they have is uh, that they enjoy taking pleasure from having some food it's very important so that means for example that um, at lunchtime they take it can be two hours between the between 12 o'clock and two o'clock Within those two hours, most people are basically just trying to enjoy their lunch and they take time over it and that's normal because eating and enjoying food is a very important part of the culture. So what that means for me is that if I want to go out and do some shopping during my lunch break, which is very normal back in England, 
So if I have some time, you know, during my lunch break and I need to buy some things, I'll go to the shops and I realise, why are they all closed? Why are all the shops closed? And it's just because the people who work in those shops have, have just uh, taken their lunch break. In England, normally, those shops would stay open because people work shifts. Some people would eat their lunch early, other people would eat their lunch later, and at least one person would stay in the shop and make sure it was open. Um, and in England, it would be pretty un unacceptable if that shop was closed. In France, though, it's okay because everyone understands, no, we need to eat and enjoy our food. Everyone has the right to just stop working and sit down and eat for those two hours. So no one finds it to be a problem that a lot of little shops and things are closed during those two hours. Me, on the other hand, sometimes I'm, I go out and I think, right, I really need to get, you know, something. And I go to a shop and it's like, why is the shop closed? I can't believe it. And then I realised, ah, oh, no, this is France. They do things a little bit differently here. You just have to accept it. So it could be values. It could be um, more physical things like the climate and the weather. Um, just the fact that um, if you go and live in another country, the air quality might be different. The general temperature, the weather will be different. And it might take you some time to physically adapt to that. Uh, if you go back to my episode called Sick in Japan, you can hear a pretty good example of how I wasn't really ready to deal with the very hot and very humid conditions in uh, the Japanese summertime. And I was responding to the hot weather in the same way that I would do back in England, which is basically to go out and get lots of sun on your skin because you don't get many opportunities to get sunlight. So I was going out getting lots of sunshine and actually, that's kind of dangerous because it's very hot and the sun is very powerful. Naturally, I ended up getting sunburnt. Pretty stupid on my part. But I underestimated the power of the heat and the sunlight at that time. Okay, um, so climate, um, uh, social systems, language, of course, is, is massive detail. You know, just being able to understand what the hell is going on around you, um, all of these things can combine to create a sort of emotional and physical reaction. Um, so what I'm talking to you now about the four phases of, of culture shock is all based on various studies in psychology, sociology, um, neuroscience, um, cultural theory, and there is generally accepted knowledge that culture shock impacts in various ways. The four phases, we talk about four phases of it, and some people say that these phases tend to happen within certain periods of time. In my experience, um, the four phases of culture shock are not always rigidly um, stuck to, to time frames. Instead, what I experience is that uh, I might experience different types of culture shock at different times and sometimes I'm in like phase two and then at other times I go back to phase one and then I'm then I'm experiencing phase four for a while then I go back to phase three it kind of depends on what happens to you while you're living in another place it depends on events you know um, like people you meet if you get a girlfriend or boyfriend or something and, and that can take you down a certain path um, so uh, we talk about four phases. It's not necessarily in the perfect chronological order, but there's certainly four types of experience you can have as a culture shock. Um, I'd like to try and avoid making generalizations. It's always good to do that. I'll be talking about my experiences of different cultures, um, but I'm always aware that you shouldn't generalize too much. Um, 
and that you've got to try and keep an open mind. But I will just tell you about things that I've experienced myself. If you, listening to this, consider them to be um, untrue or or generalisations, or at least um, if you get the impression that I don't really understand something about the culture that I'm talking about, that's fine. That's absolutely normal. I'm not an expert on every single place I've visited. I'm just telling you about my experiences. So if you think there's something I need to know um, that will help not just me but everyone um, get a greater understanding of the things I'm talking about, then what are you going to do? Of course, you're going to leave a comment on the website, go to teacherluke.co.uk, find this episode and just leave your comments. I'd love to hear from you. Um, Right, so let's get started. Let's talk about the different phases of uh, culture shock, all right? Um, Phase one Phase one is generally, well, phase one is called the honeymoon phase. The honeymoon phase. Um, Right, honeymoon. You know what that is, don't you? That's when two people get married. Um, They get married and then immediately they go on their honeymoon. It's a kind of holiday where everything's wonderful and fantastic because you're just married and you're looking at life through rose-tinted spectacles. Rose-tinted glasses means that you're seeing everything in a very romantic and positive light. Uh, People often use the word honeymoon to talk about a period of time. It's the honeymoon period. It's the honeymoon phase, meaning the positive period that happens at the start before reality kicks in okay um so the honeymoon phase so in this phase apparently um any differences between you and the culture you're living in are seen in a kind of romantic and positive light that's the sort of phase that you experience probably when you go somewhere on holiday so if you're just sort of vacationing in a place you're just going Uh, on holiday you're only experiencing the sort of surface you're only experiencing uh, life in that place um, that the kind of uh, experience that's been um, uh, that's been geared or presented to you as a tourist so of course you're going to have more fun because you're there for fun you're there you're you're uh, there's a there's a whole infrastructure probably in that place designed to make it easier for you as a tourist so that you don't have to confront all the difficult things that uh, uh might happen to you on a daily basis if you just live there no instead you have tourist agents you have guidebooks you have all the stuff that you need to help you have a really good holiday um so yeah the first few first like few months or so the first few weeks Uh, It's just great. It's like you're on holiday and um, uh, everything's really positive. Like, for example, let's see. When I... um Okay, when I first arrived in Paris, there was a sort of honeymoon period where I was just... Uh, um, really buzzing from being in a new place and just ex- just finding out all of these weird new experiences. There's something quite exciting about being uh, in a place that you don't know, um, a place that's got so much to offer. Um, there's all these things that you see, it's all coming in at you at speed and um, it's quite overwhelming in a, in a nice way. You know, it's almost like you're in a sort of dream. You're in a dream world. Um, and that's great. It's always good to be, for example, if you go to a new place to find a nice place to have a drink or to eat something and you settle down and you have your drink and you just have a look at the way people live their lives in this place. And it's quite, um, uh, what's the word for it? Uh, um, I can't think of the word, but it's... It, 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 
you make it almost makes you feel drunk on the experience um i'm going to try and remember that word and i can't that's terrible isn't it you're listening to luke's english podcast and luke can't remember a word but it happens ladies and gentlemen um it happens to everyone doesn't matter if it's your first language or second language everyone forgets words at times um no that word is not going to come to me never mind um so i think actually that there is a phase that happens before the honeymoon phase not always but it's possible and that that first phase is just fear and panic um you might know what i'm talking about if you've been somewhere for the first time maybe on your own um let's see like when i went to japan obviously the I, i kind of uh fluctuated between the honeymoon phase and the kind of fear phase to be honest with you i went there on my own and um when i arrived like the first week or so it was really up and down sometimes it was just really exciting and exhilarating um and other times it was just scary because i thought well, i don't know what's going on like uh, i don't know if i'm going to get on the wrong bus and i'll end up in a part of the city that i don't know where you know i'm scared i'm going to get lost what happens if i have an accident it it is pretty scary and at times you just want to stay at home stay in your safety zone because you don't want to go out and and have to face this radically different world so i think there is a there is a um a kind of another first phase which is that fear when you feel shell shocked um shell shocked that's an expression that comes from world war 1 when bombs dropped around the soldiers and when a bomb drops near you it can really disorientate you and some soldiers would experience something called shell shock that's where bombs are dropped around them and they get really disorientated and they don't know where they are or what's going on so it can feel a bit like you're shell shocked uh, at the beginning of your your experience but also the honeymoon phase very po- very uh, positive very nice and very romantic then we have the negotiation phase and um this is after you've spent uh, time in in a place and you've gone through the romantic period and it's not quite so new and exciting anymore instead reality is starting to kick in and this is when differences between you and the the other culture become a lot more obvious and become quite problematic as well um for example uh, it could result in feelings of frustration or anger um um certain kind of unfavorable things uh can can make you feel like the host culture is actually strange and offensive to you almost um uh, it's the point where you think okay i've 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 it, this has been really fun but now i need to get down to business i need to do some serious things and then you you start to experience some some um obstacles and barriers okay normally this phase might this phase will be brought on by some bad experiences that you might have that kind of bring you back down to earth okay so it could be um it could be something like making in the room, in the uh honeymoon phase you make some friends you make friends with some local people for example because you're um enjoying kind of exploring their differences and they're enjoying exploring 
you know the differences that you have between you and them and you know you have all the sort of fun conversations where you say oh it's like this in my country what's it like there and that's all very fun and then once you get beyond that and you have to get down to the nitty-gritty of a relationship let's say you, you you're in a relationship you've got a girlfriend or boyfriend from the culture that you're living in and something goes wrong you know um maybe you break up with each other because you realize after a while that actually you don't really understand each other and and the the fun of exploring your differences um make you know moves moves into a a a a period where the differences are actually preventing you from being able to operate as a couple right so i mean i've had that experience when i was in japan i did have a girlfriend and um i had as as i just said it was great at the beginning because you you know you're both totally different and sort of exotic and so on and um she's got ideas about you she's kind of projecting her expectations of you as a foreigner onto you and um maybe you're doing the same thing to her and then when she realizes that you're not that guy then it can break down and you and um um you know you you have a slightly bad experience so yeah i had a i had a girlfriend in japan um after a few months um and exactly that i think she probably thought i was going to be like this she thought i was just different for some reason in japan they seem to think that um if you're a foreigner that there's something cool about that i know that not everyone thinks that but a lot of japanese people and people in other countries too they objectify foreigners to an extent certainly westerners i felt um so for example, I would meet a group of Japanese people and they would say things like, oh, you're so cool because you're English. And I would think inside I was thinking, well, no, I'm really not. You know, I'm not I'm not that cool at all. Um, obviously, now, uh, listeners, I've obviously become cool. I've become cooler. But I remember when I was in um, Japan, I wasn't I didn't really consider myself to be a cool person. I don't really consider myself to be a cool person now, actually. But. Um, I just felt I was being treated like I was more special than I deserved, okay? Um, So people would expect me to be this cool British foreigner, um, and inside I felt awkward and geeky and not really very confident or cool. I'd never been considered cool really before, but then in Japan suddenly I'm this guy with all this charisma. Um, And so... Um, maybe the girl that I was seeing had this objectified idea of what I was. I don't really know what she thought I was, um, but she was certainly excited to be going out with an English guy. Um, but then after a while, when she, when my behavior sort of didn't quite match what she expected of me, um, maybe, maybe it's because my, okay, maybe it's a question of expectation and reality in many ways. Like, she may have expected me to be cool in in some way, but then when I, when my behavior, my real foreign behavior started happening, she didn't really know how to handle it. So, I didn't behave in a, I guess, oh, it's difficult to explain, but I guess what might have been going on is that she probably expected me to be cool in in a japanese kind of way she probably expected me to behave in to behave basically like a japanese person but a japanese person who looked like an english guy do you know what i mean so um when i started to not behave in that way it may have caused problems i don't mean to okay if i'm getting anything wrong let me know but i felt like 
okay in a relationship in england or in the uk i think it's quite normal to like talk about your feelings quite a lot you we're quite open with our feelings and we talk quite frankly and sincerely in a in a in an intimate relationship we're quite uh used to exploring our emotions and talking about how things are between between you and the and the girl right so it might be that you might have an argument and it's normal to have an argument where you uh, challenge each other and you um you get upset with each other and that's normal and then after a while you break you you, you um you make up with each other and you kind of move on and it helps to strengthen the relationship um i found in maybe in japan when i started to talk about my feelings it was a little bit too intense and uh it didn't work out i don't know i mean it's it's hard to say isn't it because it could have been a cultural difference between me and the girl but it could have just been a personality difference because i could actually say the same thing about um relationships i've had with english girls where after a, a few months it doesn't work out um so it's very hard to tell really if it's just a cultural difference or if in fact it's just individual differences anyway um something like having a a, a breakup um will bring you back down to earth okay and so at that point it can make you feel kind of disconnected from the culture you're living in it doesn't have to be a, a relationship problem it could be anything else it could be for example where you're you now now that you're living in that country and you need to find a job and you have to go through all the process of applying for jobs and having interviews in a foreign country and you realize suddenly that it's different the rules are different and it's difficult because you're struggling to to um adapt to that situation um and you think i you know i'm good i'm i can get a job i'm really good but these people just don't seem to be able to identify it maybe because they're looking for different kinds of skills they're looking for someone who will present themselves in a different way um i mean in france for example i've realized now that uh, you have to be really well dressed and if you're well dressed certainly in paris if you're well dressed it opens doors like the other day i had a job interview and i wore a really nice suit i've got one really nice suit and i thought i'm going to wear the good suit today and see what happens i went in the morning to my french class wearing the suit the teacher was absolutely delighted to see me in a suit she was she was just falling over herself with compliments oh you look so elegant and she kept saying this and i was like oh, thanks very much maybe the teacher was just being positive to me because that's what you know language teachers do but um I I've certainly felt a big difference from her and then I went and had lunch in a restaurant and normally in restaurants when I go I'm like wearing jeans and you know like a jacket or something here I was really really well dressed and immediately I got the sense the waiter was like really looking after me he kept kind of making um making sure I was okay and like uh, you know giving me lots of attention and i thought i i'm sure i wouldn't get this kind of treatment if i were if i wasn't wearing this suit so it seems that being well dressed in this city is an advantage um and i hadn't really considered that before because in england of course it's important to be well dressed but i sort of think well it's it's more important to just say the right things and to do the right things and to have the right intentions and the right knowledge and that the the appearance is secondary um i think thinking about it now on reflection 
I think it's probably true in the, in England too that if you dress well, that always helps, doesn't it? But I think it's definitely it's certainly true in in Paris. Um, so yes. The negotiation phase, um, you become more aware of all the differences. And you, it can cause you to, to start questioning the culture you're living in and start challenging it and start thinking that they're all wrong, you know. Um, you've, got, you've got sort of several responses to that um, negotiation phase. One of them is that they're all wrong and I don't know how these people live like this. The other one is I'm wrong. I'm lost. I'm an idiot. I'm getting everything wrong. Okay, so let's start with the first one. How can they live like this? That's quite a common question that might pop up in your head. Um, and it will do. If you're living in a new place, after a while, eventually, you will start challenging what's going on around you. And you will start thinking, how can these people live like this? Um, it's a phase you go through and you sort of deal with it, but it's very normal. Uh, for example, when I was living in Japan, I would observe the extreme working culture that they had. Uh, people work very hard and they work very late. Uh, they often work overtime without being paid. I felt like people were... Uh, slaves to their companies it was almost inhumane it felt it felt like it felt like that but after a while I realized well that's just the way it is here and although they do work super hard and it can be very stressful um, the principle should be that the company that they're working for sort of looks after them in return by giving them like n a nice bonus um, and by giving them um, different types of support, different kinds of remuneration, like health care and all these sorts of things. So although to my English eyes, it would look like this is insane, this working uh, environment where everyone's so stressed out and they're married to the company, from the Japanese point of view, this is quite normal. And it goes back years and years and years back to a system in which there were large companies that would have very hierarchical, um, would they have very hierarchical structures? Well, certainly large companies that had lots of staff who would work for that company forever. They would work for the company for life and they were very, very um, um, loyal to the company. And this system allowed some Japanese companies to become extremely successful and extremely powerful. It's a very effective uh, business model that, that the Japanese have. It's an employment model, it's a business model, and it's something that makes Japan a great nation in to an extent. So I can I can kind of see the advantage of having companies that um, um, demand loyalty from their staff because ultimately it makes the company bigger and stronger and more powerful, and then the country is stronger. And so that should have some knock-on effect on the general quality of life in that country. Um, I still struggle to understand, to be honest, how some Japanese company workers can get up really early and get on an incredibly crowded train and travel um, in squashed conditions to work in a company where their boss demands that they work super hard and then forces them to stay late at the end and then at the weekend they have to come into work because the boss is coming into work and they don't get any holiday and they get five paid holidays a, a year and even some of those days they have to work i still struggle to deal with that but you know in japan it's normal so fine um, i think that's changing um, i expect there may be younger japanese people listening to this who are thinking no it's not like that anymore 
let me know, leave a comment, even a simple basic comment, just tell me what you think. Um, I've mentioned the shops being closed um, at lunchtime in France sometimes. Um, if you're living in England, it might just be that you, you, you just become fed up with eating the same dull food every day. So you might just get to a point where you think, I cannot eat any more of this bread. Um, how do these people live like this? How do English people live with, with this food? Um, I'm going to try and answer that question in my next podcast, actually. Um, and it could be that if you're living in London, you might get completely fed up with a summer that never arrives. The summer that never comes in London. And if you are from, let's say, Spain or Italy or a place where the sun shines a lot... Um, and you come to live in London you, and you live there for 12 months, you might, you might, it might affect you physically because you probably will be used to having a certain amount of sunlight on your skin every day and it allows your body to produce certain vitamins and, and things like that um, and it does affect your mood. In England, we're more used to having less sunlight and so um, we understand just by instinct that when the sun shines, you go outside and you get sun on your skin, you, you try and get as much sun as you can. Um, or we've just developed other ways of somehow making up for the fact that we're not getting as much sun. So it could just be, I don't know, uh, we take a, a two week holiday in a sunny place or we compensate for lack of sun by, I don't know, drinking lots of tea or beer or something, I don't know. But there's probably some way in which English people have learnt to deal with lack of sun. Maybe it's just that, our, that for some people in England, the skin tone, you know, means that we, our bodies are slightly more sensitive to sunlight. And so when the sun does shine, we get as much, you know, vitamin D as we can just naturally, just because the skin is more sensitive. There's all sorts of possible ways in which, in England, having less sunlight is normal. And in, let's say, the south of Spain, that would be seen as almost like torture. Um, one thing I can say is that in England, we do find it miserable that there's no sunlight. I mean, I say no sunlight. It's not really true, because we do get weeks and weeks and weeks of beautiful sunshine. But it can feel like, you know, at the end of February or the beginning of March, it can feel like you've spent you know, six months without seeing the sun. Uh, but we do find that miserable too. We're not all running around going, yay, clouds, we love rain. No, we're not doing that either. Uh, we hate that weather too. It's just that maybe we've developed a way of dealing with it. You know, we have that kind of dark sense of humour, which is just a sort of a way of... of um, um, trying not to let things bother you too much you know maybe that's where the stiff upper lip character comes from that kind of sense of well yes it's everything's crap but i'm not going to let it get me down come on let's stay in control don't don't um don't get too emotional don't get too upset maybe that's something to do with it um right so um, yeah, it can be largely environmental, dealing with weather changes, light cycles are different, bacteria levels, um, you know, just generally uh, in a new place, you might find that the balance of bacteria is different and your immune system isn't really able to deal with it as, as well. Um, so you might get sick a little bit at the beginning and it takes a while for your immune system to catch up. It could be that the water is, has a different sort of chemical balance to it. In London, the water is very hard. It has lots of um, 
let's see, it's got lime in it. Um, for example, uh, when you um, when you have when you make lots of cups of tea, if you look inside your kettle. Uh, in London, you'll find that the kettle will be caked with um, a sort of um, mineral. And that's normal. It's just our water is hard. And this affects, for example, people's hair. So um, a lot of the girls who I used to teach in London, it was quite regular complaints. They would talk about the hair. Like, I don't know what it is about the water in this in this country, but my hair is... It just It's really bad for my hair. So back in their own country, they've got beautiful... Uh, flowing hair and then they come to London for a few months and the hair is like suffering from the from the different water um, whereas you know the English girls it's kind of normal and the hair is a, has adapted to it um, it could be different different medical practices different food packages and availability um, so those things can can make you feel like the place you're living in is is wrong and ridiculous and that's a perfectly normal thing to experience you just have to uh, try and be aware that it's happening. Um, I've spoken before about the fact that culture shock isn't really a good expression and that we should perhaps say things like culture depression or culture uh, frustration. Um, so what can happen is that you tend to just find that you're having a frustrating or confusing or even upsetting time. You might feel, you might feel lonely, you might feel homesick, and um, it doesn't mean it's just you. They're completely normal, completely natural responses to a change in environment. So um, what you shouldn't do is start to build up attitudes about the place that you're living in. You should try not to assume that the place you're living in is all wrong because there will be perfectly good reasons behind everything. So what you should avoid is making... Um, you should avoid um, making up your mind about the place that you're living in. And I mean, you should avoid um, collecting various negative points of view. Um, it's a trap, okay? It's a trap. Don't start thinking, don't start complaining about the place that you live in all the time. Because it's just going to make you look like a miserable person. Um, you need to be open-minded, you need to accept that things are just different, and you need to try and learn to enjoy them as well, and accept that, okay, I'm having a difficult time, but it could just be me because I'm trying to adapt to a different lifestyle. It could be that. Um, and similarly, don't feel too bad about yourself either. You might feel like, I'm an idiot because I'm getting everything wrong. I keep making mistakes. I feel like I'm, I'm uh, the odd one out. Um, I feel alienated. Again, try not to feel lonely or alienated too much. It's completely natural. You're just um, not used to living in that place. So you need to make an effort to be positive. You need to try and remain social. Don't stay inside. Don't hide. Don't hide away at home. You need to in that situation, that's when you need to reach out to people, make friends with, with others, uh, try to make friends with the locals if you can, but bear in mind that there are obstacles and barriers between you, and that if you're both aware of those things, it can be a great uh, way to overcome those things. So be positive, be social, um, don't let it get you down. Uh, remember that there's always a good reason for things being different and just keep going and enjoy it okay enjoy the differences celebrate the differences i would say um there's also a fear in the negotiation stage for me there's a fear that you're being converted 
and that, and that you're losing your real self. And that's quite a common fear. The idea that, okay, I've been living here for six months and I can feel that I'm becoming different. I'm changing. I'm becoming English or I'm becoming French or I'm becoming Japanese. And that can be quite a scary moment too because you think, I'm losing myself. I'm losing who I really am. I'm losing my identity. I'm being converted. Um, that's a normal fear as well. Um, let's see. Massive language barriers the language barriers. Now, you might even think that you're quite good in the language. So if you're going to live in Scotland, for example, you might think, well, my English is actually pretty good. Well, be careful because you may have just learnt a certain type of English. You may have learnt English to what you believe to be a good standard based on the the um, the requirements in your country, like your teacher in your country has said that you're advanced, but when you get to Scotland, you realise that you're far from advanced because you can't understand anything they're saying. Um, obviously, in Scotland, they have an accent, but um, there you go. There's a language barrier uh, which can mean that subtleties in communication... Like you miss a lot of the subtleties, you miss the nuances and small details in the language. And as a result, you're only getting a kind of basic half understanding of what people are saying around you. And the danger there is that you start to come to false conclusions about the people. Okay. Now, from my experience, living in Paris, I uh, obviously I don't speak French very well. I'm learning. I'm taking classes at the moment. Uh, hope to tell you more about that on a podcast soon. Um, and um, yeah, we're still recording. Good. I thought we'd stop recording for a second, but no, we're still going. Um, so I, I'm living in Paris, and my French is not very good. And so when I'm with French people, I'm listening to them. Obviously, I can't understand everything they're saying. And so what I miss is the sense of humour. Okay, I, I I hardly ever get jokes in French. Now, this could mean one of two things. It could mean French people or Parisian people have no sense of humour. It could mean that. It could mean that they, they're not funny, they don't make jokes, and they just complain about everything all the time. It could mean that, or it could just mean that in f that I, my, uh, my French is not good enough to be able to identify the jokes and that it might look like they're just complaining. What they're actually doing is making lots of very clever, very dark, very ironic jokes, um, very deadpan jokes about everything. And in fact, the French have got an extremely well-developed and very subtle uh, and very dark sense of humour, just like the English people do. So, you know, don't fall into the first trap. You have to realise that, no, give these people credit I'm sure that they couldn't just exist without a sense of humour. How could anyone exist without a sense of humour? Of course they do. It's just, it's got a different rhythm and the words are subtle and so you might not understand them. Um, so avoid coming to false conclusions about the people around you. Um, okay, for example, don't assume they have no sense of humour. It's just that you're not able to identify it. Um, also body language too. Body language is a, is a thing that you might not be aware of, that in your country, body language is almost subconscious. People are communicating massive messages just by their body movements and the way that they stand, the way they look at you, eye contact, um, 
personal space and things like that. So it's quite possible to completely misunderstand just because you're not aware of the body language conventions in that place. For example, going to Japan, um, you might think that, you know, you might assume that all Japanese people like you because they're laughing at everything you say. So, for example, there was a girl who used to work in my school, and I used to say good morning to her, and she would laugh. Like, ha ha, good morning. And I used to think, wow, I am so funny. Even the way I say good morning is hilarious. And I can make these girls laugh just by saying good morning. I'm brilliant. Well, no, that's not really what was going on. What really was going on is that uh, she was laughing because she was shy and nervous and maybe a bit uh, uncomfortable because she probably was shy about speaking English. And so it's not that you're brilliant. It's just that she is feeling awkward about trying to speak English in front of you. Um, there is an idea, there is a phenomenon called the charisma man in Japan. And I'd like to talk to you about this again in a later episode. The charisma man is a man who, um, in his home country, he's boring and he's not very uh, popular with girls and he's just a sort of ordinary person. But inside, he, you know, inside he would love to one day become a famous celebrity. It's just that he's not very attractive. He doesn't have a particularly outstanding personality. Uh, there's nothing very engaging about him. Um, and then he goes to Japan and immediately all these girls are laughing at everything he says and they're treating him like a celebrity. And it goes to his head because he's, he doesn't have the perspective to realise that it's just a cultural thing. Instead, it goes directly to his head and he starts walking around like he thinks he's God's gift to the Japanese. And this is a really common phenomenon uh, among expats living in Japan. And most people are aware of it, but some people aren't. The idea of the charisma man. So in his home country, he's just a boring, ordinary person. But then when he goes to Japan, he becomes charisma man. Um, and even the, the enemy of charisma man as well is the Western woman. Because uh, with the Japanese girls, he's like super popular, super charismatic movie star. And then he meets a, a, like an American girl and immediately he just transforms back to being boring, uninteresting and geeky just because she, uh, you know, she sees him in a completely different way. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. There can be positive things that you can get from uh, living abroad and negative things too. And I think it's important to be aware of both so that, for example, if you're being treated differently, you don't start to let it get, you, you don't let it go to your head. You don't let it make you become arrogant. Um, so, um, yes, yes, body language, for example, is important. Um, the, all these things can be exacerbated by um, your age. For example, when you typically when you go and live abroad for the first time, it's probably if you're young and so you're, you're not so experienced and you're not so well equipped to deal with these differences. Right. Now, the third phase is adjustment. That's when you adjust to life in that different country. So you develop a kind of an effective routine that works for you. You develop problem-solving skills. You develop strategies for dealing with the, the differences. The culture is not so different anymore. It's become normal for you. In fact, you may have developed a, a deeper understanding of the culture, which allows it all to make more sense. You've developed a, a, um, an appreciation of the, cult, the culture that you're, that you're living in. Um, 
Um, it might, again, make you feel a bit scared sometimes because you feel you're being cut off from your roots and you're losing something about your original culture, but certainly you're able to operate properly because you understand what's going on, right? Um, for example, learning to adopt a more French approach to life, in, you know, for, for me, um, which would be learning to deal with being direct, in England, generally, we're quite indirect. We don't like to say exactly how we feel unless we're in a, a relationship of trust, unless we're with our friends or people we trust very closely. If it's just sort of people we don't know that well, acquaintances or work colleagues, we will probably try and be indirect to prevent any um, um, conflicts that would be uncomfortable and awkward for us. We don't like getting into disagreements. We find it upsetting and uncomfortable we don't like to have confrontations with people on public transport or in the street we find it to be embarrassing and uncomfortable and awkward now in france for example people are a lot more direct and so they will quite comfortably tell people how they feel they'll give their opinions they wear their attitudes on their sleeves and it's quite normal to be very direct and, and to maybe even get into a little argument with someone that you don't know. And then after you've done that, then things tend to get a bit better. Uh, but for, in England, it, it's kind of awkward and uncomfortable to be so direct. But um, if you live like that in France, in this culture, if I lived with this English frame of mind all the time, then life would just be too difficult and too exhausting so what happens is i've learned to adopt a slightly more french approach i mean i'm not you know french by any means i never will be uh, even if i get you know french citizenship or something i'm still going to be luke from luke's english podcast um but you know you learn to just sort of relax to argue with people to tell you tell people how you feel don't be worried about causing a fuss um you know, you just learn to adapt. Um, and that's that's great because it's healthier. You've got to do as the, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You know that phrase? So when in Paris, you try and behave in the in the normal way there because it's it's better to, f um, to go with the flow than to try and resist. Um, to an extent, you don't have to just um, change completely, but you can just learn to go with the flow a little bit. Um, um, what you can learn, what you can realise during this adjustment phase is, is instead of thinking, these people are ridiculous, how can people live like this? You suddenly realise, oh, right, actually these people are really clever. You know, when you realise that their system works for them, then that's brilliant because you think, wow, actually the French are much more intelligent than I expected or they've, they've, got, every, they've got their lifestyle fixed they know exactly how to live and it works. For example, it's great in France. At five o'clock, you leave the office. Um, not, not every time. Some people, like lawyers, for example, will work late. A lot of people work overtime. But generally, the culture seems to be that at five o'clock, you finish. And that can be annoying for me with my English brain, with my English head, because I think I can send an email to someone in an office at 5.30 and I can expect a reply um, the same day. But no, 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 it doesn't work like that. Um, you send an email to someone after five o'clock, you're not going to get a reply until the next day. 
And so that can be frustrating, but then you kind of think, well, actually, if I'm working here, that's great because it means I can finish work at five and then I get my life back. Um, so the system works for them. It's different, but it works too. Um, let's see. The outcomes. Now, there are various outcomes to the negotiation or adjustment phases. Actually, wait a minute. Let me go, to, let me go on to the fourth phase uh, next and that is mastery that it's called mastery that's where you become a master of your world um, when someone has uh, become a master uh, that that person can operate without any problems sometimes it's called bicultural you're you're you become bicultural it means that you can operate perfectly in both cultures and that's pretty cool because people like that are usually a lot more open-minded so um, that's where you um, you're able to shift between different cultural mindsets different lifestyles so for example if I go back to London uh, hopefully I can just shift back into the, the London frame of mind and start operating like a Londoner doing all the normal London things and then coming back to Paris you adapt and you are able to do all the right Parisian things too and these people these sort of cultural masters um, are pretty cool because it means that they have the whole world you know the whole world is their oyster because they learn to adapt based on where they are and I find people like that tend to be pretty cool you know, when you meet someone who has experience of living in different cultures and they've got an open mind and they've got um, a, a, they've got patience with cultural difference, those people are the coolest ones. They're the ones who stay positive and they don't get upset. So they don't get pissed off about um, differences um, and they, they're just cool. So that's good. The master. Uh, cultural mastery the best of both worlds okay that's where they also learn how to get the best out of both situations so they learn i mean using london and france you know paris and france what am i saying paris and london as an example they learn for example how to cook like the parisians but they learn how to uh what how to be polite to each other on public transport like the londoners so in an ideal world you'd get like um uh, the same uh, public transport etiquette in London, but with the food from Paris. That's a bit of a generalisation because, in fact, some people on the, the underground in London can be really um, inconsiderate and some food in England can be delicious too. So you've got to be careful. I think part of this mastery is also accepting that, yes, there, there are some cultural conventions, but you also have to know when to just reject all those cultural stereotypes and just treat everyone as as a human being and give the uh, you know treat them with patience and assume uh the assume on the positive side like assume that these people are clever and 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 reasonable people instead of having some conflict and assuming that they're all stupid idiots i mean that's obviously a terrible thing to do um right now there are um in terms of outcomes or responses to culture shock, there are kind of three directions that you can go in. The first one, in my opinion, is the is the worst direction that you can go in when in when faced with culture shock. And this is to just reject it. These are the rejectors. 
okay so imagine someone who's gone to live let's say in the uk uh for a year and they experience um, the adjustment period they experience some barriers and problems and what they do what do they do they just reject the culture that they're facing and they become isolated they they're unable to integrate with the culture um, they live in their own communities so they just spend time with people from their countries and they speak their own language um, they have you know lots and lots of bad experience with the local people and they tend to think that the local culture is hostile and separate and that there's a difference between them and the locals and they might start to develop these weird um um mis um misconceptions about the local culture assuming that it's wrong or stupid or or or, or whatever um and often these people don't even realize it's happening that's why it's so important to be aware of culture shock when it happens because it allows you to deal with it often the people who reject the culture that they've lived in don't even realize that they're experiencing culture shock they're so unaware they're so narrow-minded that they just assume that everything that's happening around them is just wrong and that it's incredibly arrogant don't you think to go and live in another country and to just assume that the way that people live their lives in that country is is wrong i mean it is arrogant but i have to admit that we all we all experience that to an extent i experience it i do i have to i have to admit it living in france i do experience that sense of like frustration when coming face to face with certain things in french culture that i don't understand like the queuing etiquette which i've talked about before in england we have a regimented queuing system people naturally subconsciously will stand close to the person in front of them in the queue and people are very aware of their position in france it seems to be a little bit more relaxed and people might jump ahead of you in the queue if you're not watching out um, and that gets to me every time i can't stand being queue jumped it's a real a real issue for me um but i you know i always have to think to myself it's okay just don't get too don't get too upset about it instead what i do is i remember it write it down and then use it in stand-up comedy and just make fun of the situation that seems to be a really good way of dealing with it sense of humor is so important um lots of um okay ironically these rejectors have more problems integrating back into their home culture because they've changed without realizing it and then they find it extremely hard to deal with so it's like these these people just have no idea what's going on all that all that's happening is that they're resisting change but they don't realize that change is inevitable and that um they can't uh, stop it so even when they go back to their own countries they don't realize that they've changed and so they experience the same culture shock again and they're unable to deal with it again because they're kind of um in denial um right another one uh, another direction that you can go in when you live abroad is to just completely adopt the culture that you're living in so these people are called adopters so we've had rejectors and now adopters so the adopters basically integrate fully just become fully integrated they might even lose their original identity for example they would sort of stop speaking their first language um, they would um, start becoming kind of proud of the host culture that they're living in start supporting the national football team for example they um these are the sorts of people that would probably live in the country forever they might be um 
they might have emigrated. So you find that, um, for example, a lot of the Indian uh, community who came to live in England, they actually decided, they made a, a conscious decision to start speaking English at home because they did it out of respect for the country they were living in and they thought that ultimately since they were living in the UK that they would speak English and they would live like English people. Um, I'm not saying it's good or bad, it's just one of the options. Then the... Um, um, oh, the thing about the Indian families, not all of, not all Indian families, and it wasn't just Indian families, not all Indian families like let, um, stopped speaking their native language. A lot of Indian families kind of have both, and they become very cosmopolitan, and they are still completely in touch with their original Indian roots, and yet they also have the English and the understanding of the English culture. So I suppose this is like the third direction that you can go in. You can become a cosmopolitan master, uh, which is where you learn to adapt and to be flexible, moving between cultures, creating a unique blend of the best of both worlds. That's what I said before about being like a superhero, international man. Um, you can take the positive aspects of both cultures and remain open-minded and have a tolerant and flexible attitude to change. These, so these kinds of people can become quite nomadic, though, as they as, as um, like moving, changing, learning to adapt in different countries, that becomes the norm. And so they end up unable to settle down and they have to keep moving. They get itchy feet after a few years and they have to have the buzz and the excitement of moving to a different culture. So these kind of cosmopolitan people can be quite nomadic. You know, they, you find that they, um, they just never stay settled in one place for too long. And after a couple of years, they're off and living somewhere else. It's quite common for English language teachers to be fairly nomadic just because they have the option of, of living in other countries. Um, yes, yeah, so there we go. We've had four uh, phases of culture shock. We had the, um, the first phase was the honeymoon phase. Uh, possibly accompanied by a fear and panic phase. We had the negotiation phase. We had the, um, um, what was the other phase? The negotiation phase. We had the um, uh, adjustment phase, the mastery phase as well. Those are the four phases. Then different outcomes. Um, the, either people become rejectors because they don't even realize that they are rejecting the culture that they're, they're living in. Uh, they might become adopters and just become fully converted, or they might become these kind of cool um, cosmopolitan masters, these sort of superheroes of the world, these inter international people. Um, there is a final thing I want to talk about, and that's reverse culture shock. Uh, reverse culture shock is when you've been living abroad and you come back to your own country and you experience culture shock coming back. Now, this is always a surprise, um, and it can be more difficult. It can be even more difficult than the first round of culture shock, um, because no one realises you're different. Um, you see, they don't realise that you've changed. So no one realises you're different. No one treats you differently. And it's somehow kind of more disturbing. It seems like, doesn't anyone realise that I'm different? And um, everyone treats you like you used to be but they don't they don't see they can't see the things that have changed about you um 
It can be cool because it allows you to rediscover your own culture with fresh eyes, with a fresh uh, perspective. But it can also be quite tough to try and deal with the re-entry into your own culture. I'll try and give you an example of Japan. So you know that when I first arrived, it was really complicated because I, you know, I was scared of getting on the wrong bus. I didn't know how to use cash machines. Just everything I did was complicated and difficult, and so it was quite scary. But accompanied with that was this incredible, invigorating excitement of. Um, um, of like investigating a new culture and all of the fun things that come along with that then sort of reality set in when I sort of had trouble with a relationship and when I struggled to do other things like deal with having to pay bills and like dealing with doctor's appointments and a medical situation and getting sick and then after that I felt like I understood the culture in a lot more depth and I became a lot more uh, sophisticated about how to live in Japan. I knew I, I got a, a, a more sincere appreciation of the Japanese lifestyle. I started to live a bit more like the Japanese. For example, I. Um, um, it's hard to say the some of the things. Okay, one thing is that I I I learnt that taking your shoes off before you come home, before you come into your apartment, is a really good thing, because it keeps the floor clean, and it feels like everywhere you go on the floor is all clean, and you can sit on the floor, and it's not kind of dirty or anything. The place is so much cleaner and more comfortable and pleasant when you take your shoes off at the door, and so that became normal for me. And after I moved back to London, I lived. In my, um, I lived in an apartment in London for about six months, and then my brother moved in with me. Now, I was still living like a Japanese person to an extent, living uh, in a sort of peaceful, fairly quiet way, uh, taking my shoes off, um, just living with a sort of Japanese sensibility. I like to keep things clean and, and tidy. Um, and then uh, my brother came back, and it was just like, a little culture clash, but he didn't realise because he had no idea of the culture that I was coming back from. So he thought I was just me as I was before. And so he found it really strange and weird that I was asking him to take his shoes off before he came in. And I, you know, it was difficult for me because I didn't want to force him to do it, but I thought it was good. And I, I, I believed that if I could convince him to, to take his shoes off every day, that he'd also start to appreciate the fact that it would be cleaner and more comfortable. I mean, like, I never realised until I'd lived in Japan for several several years that wearing your shoes around the house when you've got carpet all over the floor is kind of disgusting. Because if you think about it, that carpet must get really filthy and horrible. Now, a lot of people who come to live in England have this complaint. Like, they say, I can't believe you've got carpet everywhere. It's disgusting. And I do understand that completely. The carpet must get very dirty, especially when you're wearing shoes that you've been wearing outside in the street and you're just walking in the street and then you're walking on your carpet with the same shoes. It's it's horrible when you think about it. But growing up in England where we had carpet on the floor all the time, it was completely normal. And to be honest with you, I don't think we ever suffered that much from, you know, we, we weren't getting all ill and sick all the time from from having dirty carpets maybe a lot of it's in the mind and that it's you know the dirt that you get on the carpet is fairly harmless but um 
I didn't realise, and, and it wasn't until I'd lived in Japan that I started to think, actually, carpet's a bit disgusting, and wearing shoes on carpet is also pretty disgusting. But my brother had no clue about any of this. And so, for him, he just felt like I was being really annoying, uh, asking him to take his shoes off. So, that really, there was nothing I could do, because I would say to him, James, do you think you could take your shoes off? And he would get all annoyed, like, oh, I don't want to take my shoes off. <laughs> like that, and then it would be a bit of a problem. You know, so there are lots of things like that um, and all kinds of other things I could go into. I'm not going to go into it now because I'm running out of time. Um, So reverse culture shock. Okay, so there you go. That's my episode about the stages of culture shock. Um, I hope that you found it useful. Uh, If you have something to say, you know what to do. Teacherluke.co.uk. Go there and write some comments share your culture shock experiences i'd very much like to know about them do you agree with the four stages do you think there are four are there any other stages what experiences have you had that match those stages tell me what culture shock experiences have you had where did you go what happened tell me just give me a basic comment simple a few lines if you want or you can tell me more Whatever you want to do, I'm interested in reading about your experiences. That's it for this episode. If you're listening in Russia, hello. If you're listening in Poland, Spain, Italy, the UK, Japan, Ukraine, United States, Republic of South Korea, Brazil, Czech Republic, Belarus, or Mexico, hello to you. You're, um, you were um, my top countries yesterday. I know that I get listened to in other places. If your country's not on that list, you know what to do. Tell your friends about Luke's English Podcast so you can get your country up to the top of that list all right that's it for this episode speak to you very soon but for now it's goodbye bye bye bye. thanks for listening to luke's english podcast for more information you can visit teacherluke.co.uk